morning. <laughs> I just had a horrible realization as I came across there and saw myself in the mirror. I realized I'm wearing Waldo's glasses. <laughs> It's good to see everyone. Glad you're here. Before I start, I'd like to go through that little ritual that I've kind of managed to become addicted to, just to remind myself and ourselves together what's important and uh, to get the most important things established first, and then we can talk about whatever we talk about. The first, of course, is from Takor, as everybody knows, this idea of sincerity and earnestness. That if we have those established in ourselves, that God himself will take care of our next step. He says that even if you're in error in what you're doing, if you're sincere and you're earnest, he will take responsibility for correcting your step and guiding you in the right way. So it's a commitment this morning for that sincerity and for that earnestness. And the second one is from Jesus for this idea of loving God and each other as being the most important commandment. He said, if all the other commandments fall away and you abide by that one, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other as you love yourself, uh, that is the highest commandment. And so it's a commitment that I make every time I do this, and actually every time I, kind of a, the pole star of life, I think, is to, to follow that ideal for love. And the last, and maybe one of the most difficult is uh, when Takor was throwing away the pairs of opposites uh, in the world, trying to find that unity in, in God. He, he started to say, Mother, here's your truth and here's your untruth, but he realized that he wasn't able to let go of truth, that truth is fundamental uh, to our path. And so it's a commitment to that truth, that truth that's inner and, and outer. And really, truth and the idea of sincerity and earnestness really hold hands, because when Takor talks about truth, He's talking about an integrity. He's talking about that alignment between your thoughts, your words, and your actions. That those three should be in alignment. And so it's a commitment to that, to, 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 be, to minimize being a hypocrite, <laughs> to be as, as, as clear as we can on that. And once we've got all that established and think we're secure, I'm going to read Hafiz, who's going to pull the chair out. This is the name of his poem, Pulling Out the Chair. It's a short one because we've got a long lecture today. Pulling out the chair beneath your mind and watching you fall upon God, what else is there for Hafiz to do that is any fun in this world at all? So I want to return to that idea, that idea of just pulling the chair out from underneath our mind and uh, free-falling into God, having that that returning that fun to our spiritual life, that sense of, of wonder and that sense of mystery and an, and an investigation into the deepest truths of our life. And uh, for that, I'm going to, to dig in somebody else's scriptures this morning. Um, you know, funny enough, in, in the Bible, the Christian scriptures, it says that all scripture is, is uh, valuable for teaching, for reproof, and for developing the spirit. And it's in the New Testament in a book of Hebrews. And, uh, you know, growing up as a Christian, I was always uh, taught that that meant the Bible. You know, that all scripture and the Bible is the only scripture. But the odd thing about that, and one of the realizations in Vedanta, was that uh, 
the Bible wasn't written, wasn't compiled when the book of Hebrews was written. <laughs> so I choose to think that all scripture, all the world's scriptures are valuable to us. And so we're going to cross over and uh, take some gold from the Christians this morning, uh, really at the, at the behest of, of Vivekananda. He says, uh, it is significant, a significant fact that all religions without one exception hold that man is a degeneration of what he was, whether they clothe this in mythological words or in clear language or philosophy or in the beautiful expression of poetry. This is the one fact that comes out of every scripture, out of every mythology that man, that is, that man is a degeneration of what he was. This is the kernel of truth within the story of Adam's fall in the Jewish scripture. This is again and again repeated in the scriptures of the Hindus. The dream of a period when, with what, in what they call the age of truth, when no man died unless he wished to die, when he could keep his body as long as he liked and his mind was pure and strong. There is no evil and no misery. At the present age, the present age is a corruption of that state of perfection. I love that idea when you have those, you know, con- convergences when when there's a story that's in all of the all of the religions together that that certainly gives it a, a certain boost and so we're going to go and take a look at the the story of the fall of adam uh this morning and i don't know how many people have read it uh so uh, I'll, I'll read it to you first and then we're going to go through it uh, with our vedantic tools and uh pull some gold out of it uh you know i grew up thinking it was a literal story and uh you know, that, that may be, I'm not going to say that it's not a literal story, but that's certainly not all it is. And there certainly is much more to be gleaned from it. Uh, if you take it as a, a spiritual mythology, a teaching um, that's unfolding. It's kind of funny because when I was in Mayavati uh, in 2012, after my taking my vows, uh, the Swami, that's where they produced the Prabuddha Bharata, right? The, the magazine. And so he told me to write an article while I was there. So this idea for this lecture actually comes from that. I thought I would write this article for him. Well, I wrote this article, and they actually were found it very humorous. They didn't publish it. <laughs> <laughs> because I couldn't get them to believe uh, what I assume is true. I really don't know. But that, that this is a story that most Americans take literally, you know, the fall of man. Like, the Swamis <laughs> there wouldn't believe me when I told them that. They, that was so outlandish to them that they, didn't, they wouldn't believe that I was telling them the truth, that most Americans take the story true. So they thought my article was more humorous than, than poignant. So we're going to resurrect it this morning. So here it goes. This is from Genesis 3, starting in verse 21 of that scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit of of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, 
and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, hid among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put there with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now God goes on at this point to give a list of repercussions for what they did. And uh, you can read through them on your own if you're interested in them, but the interesting thing that I found about them is that every one of them is just one of the sufferings of, of believing you're a body, believing that you have a separate existence from God, the suffering that comes from that. But he ends them, he concludes them saying, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. (laughs) That's a terribly sad story when you think of it. And it's even sadder because what this story has become to me as I've read it over and over and over again is really a description of a continual cycle that is spinning in our mind as spiritual seekers right now. That it's not a story of something that happened at one time. It's not a thing that came and went and is finished. This is a cycle that spins through your mind, a series of events that continues through your mind all day long. That fruit that we're reaching out for is in our mouth at this very moment from the bites that we're continually taking as we believe ourselves to be these bodies. So I wanted to go through and take a look at how this happened. How did it come that we were willing to leave our Eden, that we were willing to leave that inner peace, that inner beauty, that inner security, that inner strength, that perfect love? How is it that we've left all of that for, for really, for, for, for work, <laughs> for a constant scratching at the ground to fulfill our desires? So I thought we'd go back and look at what happened as we went through here. We see that we have the serpent. He's the most crafty of all the animals, the Bible says. And I thought about, well, why would, why would we choose the serpent? Why would we choose the most crafty of animals to start the story? And one of the things about a snake is you always stumble upon them, right? They're, they're just suddenly there. You know, it's like you almost step on them. You grab a rock and it's there. You never hear them coming, you know. And it's that idea behind our that initial 
breaking of our ego, where we lose that oneness of God, where Maya starts and the unity ends. It's that inexplicable space, you know, when you're sitting in the shrine and you suddenly realize that you've been thinking about crazy stuff for the last 20 minutes and you try and backtrack where that broke break happened. And you can't. You can never find that moment when you had that first thought that was no longer your mantra, you know. And that's how the, the nature of, of this fall, that's the nature of our delusion is that it, you, can't, you can't figure out where it happened. You can't tell where it happened. It's like a serpent. It just suddenly is there, You're, and you have to deal with the danger. You have to deal with the problem. So it's this thing that sneaks up on us, this thing that we're not aware of. And what's the first thing that this, that this serpent does? The first thing he does is create that dichotomy. He makes God other. Because in Eden, before the fall, there was no other. There was perfect harmony. Every desire of Adam was the desire of God. Every desire of Eve was the desire of God. There was no separation. There were no, there were no two birds in the tree at that time. You know, there was no conscience and then the other voice. There wasn't that happening. There was this perfect harmony. So the first thing he does is set up that dichotomy. God, did God say you can't eat anything in this garden? Did he say you can't eat from any of the trees? He way overstates it, right? Puts her immediately on the defensive. Well, well, wait, he said we can eat from the trees, just not that one. We just can't eat from that one. And then he creates a sense of ego in Eve. He says, well, not only is God other, but God is trying to keep something from you. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree. Eve says he doesn't want us to eat from that tree because we'll die. You know, it'll be an awful... It'll be an awful thing, which we can attest to. It's, a, it's been an awful thing. But instead of dealing with that, instead of her remembering that and holding on to that, he says to her, oh, no, 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 no. God doesn't want you to do that because then you'll be like him, having a knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you'll be like God, and God doesn't want you to be like him. So he creates this sense of ego, this sense of I, this sense of fear breaking that perfect love that's there, kind of undermining it. And Eve doesn't stop to think, no, he said, God said that we would die, that it would be a horrible thing if we did that, and that we shouldn't do it. No, what she does then is she takes and looks at the, at the fruit. Now, the interesting thing, though, here is that the lie begins immediately, because the serpent says, if you eat this fruit, you'll become like God. But see, the fact of the matter is, if you, if, you, if you were reading this in Genesis and you were reading along, you would have remembered in the first chapter, in verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and blessed them. Eve was already like God. As a matter of fact, Eve could not be distinguished from God at that point when the story is first happening. She has that perfection. She has that wholeness. She has that freedom. She has no self-consciousness of smallness, of finite, of fear. None of that is there. But yet she forgets that because she listens to this external, this other voice that's created this ego, created this separation, broken the trust, and says you'll be like God, breaking her meaning, breaking her understanding of that. And consequently, from that, you find that that even reflected in this first move of Eve's, 
this idea of wanting to, to, to become God, to, to, to have that perfection, which, which she already had, has become what we're trying to do. Vivekananda talks about it. You know, he says, every, every human being, whosoever and wheresoever he may be, has an ideal of infinite power. Every human being has an ideal of infinite pleasure. Most of the works that we find around us, the activities displayed everywhere, are due to the struggle for this infinite power in this infinite pleasure. But a few quickly discover that although they are struggling for infinite power, it is not through the senses that it can be reached. They find out very soon that the infinite pleasure is not to be got through the senses, or, in other words, the senses are too limited, the body too limited to express the infinite. To manifest the infinite through the finite is impossible. And sooner or later, man learns to give up the attempt to express the infinite through this finite. And giving this up, the renunciation of that attempt is the background of ethics. Renunciation is the very basis upon which ethics stands. There never was an ethical code preached which was not renunciation, had not renunciation for its basis. So we see this whole, this is the beginning of that whole expression, this whole drive outward. In the next verse it says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, she saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and ate it. That's exactly what happens. As soon as you start to put the to let the mind turn from you know that inward focus that inward focus and understanding of your perfection that inward understanding of the perfect love that is your nature the fact that you are the very image of the divine once you turn and begin to look out through the senses these are the first things you see oh beautiful but you can't just leave that beauty there you can't just appreciate and let it go no you have to eat it you have to take it you have to clutch onto it. You have to hold onto it. So you take it and then you eat it because you want wisdom. You want to be like God. You want to have it all. You want to own it all. You want infinite power. You want infinite pleasure. We have this need to keep and to, to accumulate because of what Vivekananda said. You'll never be able to do it. And so you will never have enough you know, I had a dream one time where I was on a beach and all there were, there were thousands of people on the beach and all of us were trying to make and have the biggest pile of sand. And we were all feverishly gathering sand, just gathering, gathering these piles of sand. And everybody was trying to have the biggest pile of sand and nobody could have the biggest pile of sand because everybody was trying to have the biggest pile of sand. So everybody was taking everybody's sand and it just couldn't be done, but all this work was going on. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Why, when we take the fruit of the senses, when we take the fruit of the ego, you know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is that? What is the knowledge of good and evil? It's God's will and not God's will, right? It's, it's, it's a sense of self that's separate and independent of God. It's ego. It's that. The fruit of the tree of good and evil is ego. And when you take your ego and you hold on to that, when you bite that fruit, when you ingest that idea of self as being something separate and apart from God, 
when you begin to look outward through those senses and you start to try and accumulate that infinite power, that infinite security, that infinite pleasure that you've left, that you've forgotten, that you've, that you've not realized you're sitting in the midst of, this is the normal, the normal result of that. This is what happens, that continual hunger of living. Ramakrishna says, You've spent your whole life in the world. You have seen that it is hollow. Isn't that so? God alone is substance. Everything else is illusory. God alone is real, and all else has only a two-day's existence. What is there in the world? The world, it's like a pickled hog plum. You crave for it. But what is there in a hog plum? Only skin and pit. And if you eat it, you'll get colic anyway. <laughs> this, this, this notion, you know, that, that there's something out there that we can have, that there's something out there that my life would be fulfilled if, you know, that, that, that if I could just acquire this, then I would feel like I've done something with my life, you know. That was one, or has been, one of the biggest struggles for me <laughs> early on, in spiritual life and moving into a monastery because like I've shared, you know, I became an expert dishwasher for, <laughs> for 15 years. I think I've shared this before, but just that notion of like, you know, wow, I have no career. I, I have no accomplishments. You know, I have no awards to put on the wall. I, I'm, I'm, you know, 40 years old and I'm washing dishes and I'm sweeping floors and I'm putting flowers on a shrine. And you kind of go through that, that, uh, insecurity that like oh my god my life is slipping away and i haven't done what i need to do i haven't done what i have to do you know you measure like that because you think there's something out there that has to be done you think there's something that has to be accomplished and i told swami prabhudana at the lunch table i told him <laughs> i said maraj i'm really struggling i hear i said you know i'm i'm a 40 40 year old man and i i, I have no savings <laughs> i have i have no family i have i I'm washing dishes. I said, if I project this out to the end of my life, I'm basically just going to be a a a, a well-respected maintenance engineer. <laughs> you know, it's like that's my future here. And I expected him to come back and try and like convince me. You know, oh well, you know this, that, and the other. He didn't. He didn't. He just kept eating, and then he stopped and he paused for a moment and he said, "See." Maybe you should go and see if it's different anywhere else. He said, look closely. There is no one in the world who's not simply a glorified maintenance engineer. <laughs> Everybody is taking care of their house, taking care of their family, taking care of their car, taking care of their lawn, upkeeping things, going to work to pay for the next month, to pay for the next meal, to pay for the next set of clothing. He said that is life. That's all there is. Don't look anymore for that. I would like to say that that gave me a great sense of peace. <laughs> but at least it kept me looking. It kept me thinking, wow, okay, my problem isn't a monastery. You know, My problem isn't spiritual life like I thought it was. My problem is that I'm not understanding life. I'm not understanding this experience that I'm going through. I'm still putting something out there that makes it better. I'm still making something out there 
that, that gives me importance or gives me respect or gives me achievement or makes me something. I'm still putting my dependences outside. And Vivekananda makes it very clear that dependences, anything outside that you have to lean on, has to be done away with. You want to get rid of that. The ideal of Vedanta is total strength, inner strength, God and God alone. God and God alone. He's my accomplishment. You know, He's my dream. He's my, my intimacy, that friendship. He's my confidence. You know, He is all of those things for us. It's not a matter of having to go and to clamor madly even one more day to try and acquire, to try and get the biggest pile of sand on the beach. <laughs> to try and get the biggest pile of sand. You know, after I had that dream, I was in, uh, uh, where was that town? Kualpara, I think it was, in India. And I was visiting a, a swami there, and it was a, it's a village, a very small village uh, center. And uh, there was this very old Indian man. I don't know if you've been to India. Of course, many of you come from India. But if you haven't been to India, one thing that I really noticed there was that in the villages, you could see people that, you, that I couldn't have never seen before. People that were so simple and so had such an innate humanity to them, such an innate purity that I had never seen. I think here, because just in my experience, you know, by the age of 10, you've seen 15,000 murders on television. And <laughs> you know, you've just been confronted with so many things that have already hardened you and already made you defensive for the outside world. But here came this old man up to me, and, and uh, he was talking to me, and I, I couldn't understand him, and the Swami was standing there, and so the Swami told him that I don't speak Bengali. And the old man looked at the Swami, <laughs> and then he looked at me, and he got this really puzzled look on his face, and he said to the Swami, because the Swami told me this afterwards, he said to the Swami, what kind of man is this that does not speak Bengali? <laughs> And the Swami told him, he's from, he's from America. He's from America, and he's come, and he's, he's taking his sannyas. Okay, then I, had this, then I had an experience that's embarrassing to tell. But it, this man, this old man, looked at me, began crying, fell to the ground, and just started throwing dust on his head from, from around my feet as I was standing there. Now... <laughs> Not only had I never met somebody like this before, I've also never had somebody react in any way like that before. And I went down, I was, I, I mean, I was alarmed. I didn't know what to do. And I just looked at the Swami, and the Swami helped the man up. And the man told the Swami, crying, the man said, he said, I, I have nothing. And this, this boy comes from America and has been able to do what I, even in my wretchedness here, am, un, am unable to do. That put the whole world in a different perspective for me. I know that makes that it's an odd story to tell because it's self-glorifying in a way. But the thought that came to me after I thought about it was like, how do I respond to that? I was like, because certainly I had not viewed my monasticism in that light at all, had not thought about that at all. And that image of the people on the beach came to mind. And I thought, that's the misunderstanding. That's the misunderstanding. 
if you try and eat one handful of dirt, you're going to stop and, and, and let go of that handful of dirt, aren't you? Just After that first bite of sand, you're not going to try another one. So what is it to renounce one handful of sand or to renounce an entire beach? That's not the measurement. It's not about what you're not eating because it's not feeding you anyway. There's no accomplishment in renouncing something that's, that's, that's not doing anything for you. It's a matter of that awareness. If you become aware of the fact that you're eating sand, you know, if Eve had stopped for a moment and stopped listening to this voice and stopped looking at this glittering fruit and stopped wanting this thing which was now out of her reach, if she had just for a moment come back and remembered, oh, wait, I've, I've had everything that I've wanted here in the garden. Not until this moment have I felt any lack whatsoever. Never, never has it occurred to me that I was naked, you know, that I was small, that I had something to be embarrassed about. None of that had ever occurred to me. What is it that you're telling me that this tree, this fruit, will give something to me that I don't have? What is it that I don't have? I'm created in the image of the divine. I am the mirror image of perfect love. I'm the mirror image of perfect strength. I'm the perfect image of delight, of pleasure. I am absolutely content. What is there that you have to give that I don't already have? There is nothing there. And that's the challenge. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the challenge. The challenge is to see, is to be quiet enough so that that contentment can express itself again. Because what is it that breaks that, intent, that contentment? Noise. You know, that distraction to the outside world. If you can just stop for a moment, inside us is our nature. Inside you right this moment is that place that needs nothing. It doesn't need enlightenment. It doesn't need more food. <laughs> it doesn't need more entertainment. It doesn't need a place to go. It doesn't need someone to love it. It doesn't need a, a scripture to encourage it. There's a place right now in you, by default, by design, that is the very image of the divine. That is everything that you need. And so in this moment, you could just stop. And just close your eyes and go in there and find it. Everything that you need for enlightenment is already there. Everything that you need for fullness, already there. All you need to do is sit there and look for a while and try and figure out why you're not seeing it. And just sit there and kind of keep shifting <laughs> this false perspective around until it lines up and you see that place. You can touch that place. And that place will be yours forever. Once you've touched it that one time, once you've seen it that one time, you can sit down in that meditation anytime and find that fulfillment, find that peace. This is your Eden. This is your home. This is the garden that you have banished yourself from. Banished yourself from. And for what? By taking a bite of the ego, 
by taking, taking the fruit of the senses, we've created for ourselves two masters, two masters, the lower voice and the higher voice. Jesus says in the New Testament, he says, a man can't serve two masters. He will always hate one and love the other, but you will never successfully serve two masters. As long as you believe yourself to be a body, you're either going to love that body or you're going to love the divine. But there's always going to be that conflict because you've given yourself two masters, two voices to listen to. And the wonder of it, the wonder of it is that these two voices that we hear in our mind, we've taken the higher voice, the conscience, and we've given it a name and we've separated it from ourselves. We have a conscience. Oh, my conscience is nagging me. <laughs> my conscience is bothering me, causing problems. You know, it's like you just had the perfect comeback. You totally slammed that person's pride and you just let them have it. Yeah. And then your conscience nags. You know, it's like, won't let you sit there and be happy. You won that battle, man. You took them out. Now the constant, <laughs> you know, and you're like, you know, the next day you realize you're going to have to apologize. You're like, God, I'm not going to apologize to them, you know, and you'll, and you'll battle and battle and battle and battle and battle back and forth, and back and forth. And eventually, usually you apologize, right? And then, then you're happy again. Everything's fine again. See, that whole battle, that whole conflict happens because <laughs> you didn't realize that the conscience isn't the foreigner. The conscience isn't the other in your mind. The conscience is you. That's your true nature. That's why it's there by default. That's why it doesn't go away. The voice that you're identifying with, attachment, that whole idea, that voice that you're holding on to and saying, this voice is me, this voice de defines me, is the lower voice. It's the voice of the senses, the voice of the ego, the voice that came the first time you took the bite of that fruit, the idea that I'm separate from God, that I'm a body, that I'm this smaller self. At that moment, at that moment, you identified with the wrong voice. <laughs> And that story of the bird, you know, where that one bird's sitting at the top all beautiful and the other one's bouncing all over the place and you eventually get up to that bird. That's a story of the reunification of that voice where you begin to identify with your conscience and not with the lower voice. When you understand, that's my voice. That's my, that's me. That's what I want. That's, that's what I want. I didn't want to win this battle with this person. I didn't want to come up with the perfect comeback. I wanted to have a good relationship with them. I wanted to love them. I wanted to care about them. I wanted to be supportive of them. I didn't want this rift. And when I, when I identified with the wrong voice, I created that rift. And now I hurt for it. Now I'm bummed out about it. Now I have to fix it. Now I have to humiliate myself because I'm still identified with that lower voice. And that lower voice can be humiliated. The upper voice can't be humiliated. An expression of love is never humiliating. Never. It's always appreciated if it's seen as for what it is. So the Lord God said, Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This was an interesting thing to me because I had kind of not realized there were two trees in the garden. 
One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then there's this other tree, the tree of life. And if you eat that fruit, you live forever. So God is now concerned, okay, these guys now have an ego. You know, they're suffering. We have to be careful that they don't get caught in that state forever. If they, in that state, go and eat to the tree of life, their suffering will be forever. That the, the body will never fall off. You know, that delusion will never go away. So he keeps them from eating that tree of life. You know, he keeps them from eating it. So he says, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden a cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And I thought about this. If this, if this ideal is in ourselves, if the Garden of Eden is within me, if my banishment is because I've taken a bite of the ego, because I've maintained an idea of myself as separate from God, different from the divine nature that's mine, then what is this what is this cherubim and the flaming sword and this keeping keeping me from returning to the Garden of Eden? What is this tree of eternal life that's that's in this garden? And how do I get there? And then I was reading Narada Bhakti Sutras. And in the first nine verses it says, Bhakti is intense love for God. It is the nectar of love, getting which man becomes perfect, immortal satisfied forever, getting which man desires no more, does not become jealous of anything, does not take pleasure in vanities, knowing which man becomes filled with spirituality, becomes calm, and finds pleasure only in God. It cannot be used to fill any desire, it itself being the check to all desires. Sannyasa is giving up both the popular and the scriptural forms of worship, the bhakti sannyasin is one whose soul goes to God, and whatever militates against love to God, he rejects, giving up all other refuge. He takes refuge in God alone. This tree of immortal life that is in the center of your garden is love for God. It's devotion. It's knowing, it's knowing the divine falling in love with the divine all over. So what's keeping us from that? What is this flaming sword that's being waved back and forth, this activity keeping us from going and turning inward? Vivekananda gives a clue in his lecture on maya and illusion. There comes a time when the mind awakes from its long and dreary dream. The child gives up its play and wants to go back to its mother, it finds truth in the statement, desire is never satisfied by the enjoyment of desires. It only increases the more as fire when butter is poured upon it. The thing that all the scriptures always talk about as being fire, as burning, is the passions, the senses. The senses are that, that activity, that waving sword, that flaming sword going back and forth that's keeping you from the love of the divine, from, the, from your devotion, from your, from your quest to Eden, to return to Eden. And so by quenching those desires, by letting go of those ideas, renouncing them, <laughs> there's a great verse. When I was searching through trying to find this verse in particular, I, I had to read many, many, many other ones because I couldn't find it. 
And actually, Swami A was the one that found the verse I was looking for. But uh, <laughs> I read a lot of them. And one of them, uh, Vivekananda was talking about the final renunciation. You know, and he says, you know, there's one level of renunciation where you're giving up all this stuff, you know, where you're, you realize this handful of sand isn't going to do it, so you renounce that one, and then you try another one over here. Well, that one's not going to do it either. <laughs> so, and depending on who you are, you might have to eat a lot of sand before you realize, hey, What's up? <laughs> Something's up here. But in that, he said, there's, there's a final renunciation, and that's the renunciation of renunciation. And I said, renunciation of renunciation? <laughs> what is that? So I kept reading, and Vivekananda said, the, the final renunciation, renunciation of renunciation, is when you come to the realization that you never owned anything of your own to renounce. <laughs> when you realize you owned nothing, all those things that you thought were yours that you went on renouncing and giving up one by one, the final realization, the final renunciation is that renunciation itself where you realize it was your papa's $10. <laughs> it was your papa's $10 that bought you all of that and nothing more. So this flaming desire, this flaming of the senses has to be put out this biting of the ego, this ingesting of an idea of ourselves as separate from God, of having a will that's different from the divine. It has to go. It has to be broken. We have to turn inward to find that peace, to find that love of God. If there is a truth, if there is a God, it must be within us. I must be able to say, I have seen him with my eyes, Vivekananda says. Otherwise, I have no religion. Beliefs, doctrines, sermons, they do not make religion. It is realization, perception of God, which alone is religion. What is the glory of all these men whom the world worships? God was no more a doctrine for them. Did they believe because their grandfathers believed? No. It was realization of the infinite, higher than their own bodies, higher than their minds, higher than everything. The world is real inasmuch as it contains a little bit of the reflection of God. We love the good man because his face shines this reflection a little bit more clearly. We must catch it ourselves. There is no other way. That is the goal. Struggle for it. Have your own Bible. Have your own Christ. Otherwise you are not religious. Do not talk religion. Men talk and talk. And some of them, steeped in darkness, in the pride of their hearts, think that they have the light. And not only that, they offer to take others upon their shoulders, and both of them fall into a pit. No church ever saved was ever saved by itself. It is good to be born in a temple, but woe to the person who dies in a temple or church. Out of it. It was good for a beginning, but leave it. It was the childhood place, but let it be. Go to God directly. No theories, no doctrines. Then alone will all of your doubt vanish. Then alone will all of your crookedness be made straight. In the midst of the manifold, he who sees that one, in the midst of this infinite death, he who sees that one life, in the midst of the manifold, he who sees that which never changes is his own soul. Unto him belongs eternal peace. We have to take this in, in, bigger than this place, 
We're not another sect. We're not a, just. We're not part of another religion. This is a human experience. This unites us with 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 everybody out there. This is a truth that everybody is experiencing. That everybody is trying to deal with. How to put out this fire that keeps getting bigger? This sense of self that that suffers continually. You know, I began thinking after several iterations of these scriptures and these ideas here, I began to think, what is this original sin? What is this original sin that we're talking about that happened here to Eve? What's a word for it? What is it listed as? And I had a rather rather startling uh, realization for myself because I realized the original sin is idolatry. It's idolatry. And oddly enough, it's not the idols that are often at the front of temples. Our problem is that our idols are sitting in our seats. We worship the body. We worship this lower ego of self. When it's hungry, we run to get it food. You know, when it wants pleasure, we run to give it pleasure. When it's sad, we look to coddle it and take care of it, to to build it up. When it's afraid, we look to comfort it. You know, this, this ideal that we exist separately from the divine and our worship of that object as ourselves, that's the original sin. That's idolatry. Idolatry has nothing to do with stones and bricks and buildings and statues and whatnots. Idols always sit on pews, always sit on prayer carpets, are always in the audience of the church. They're never the ones being worshipped. That being worshipped is the self. You know, that, that statue that sits up front is what we've degraded ourselves to. <laughs> that we've had to build a statue to represent our ideals. That we've had to remember a man you know, to, as, as our ideal. That's what we've come to. And when Vivekananda says it's bigger than the church, he does not demean that. He doesn't lower that ideal, but he's saying you have to take it out of the building. You have to take it into your soul, into your heart. You have to realize that you are that. Perfect love, perfect freedom, perfect purity. To spend your life in overcoming that and knowing that to be your truth. In the midst of the manifold, he who sees that one In the midst of this infinite death, he who sees that one life. In the midst of this manifold, he sees that which never changes in his own soul. Unto him belongs eternal peace. Hafiz says in my closing poem here, The only sin I know. If someone sits with me and we talk about the beloved, if I cannot give his heart comfort, If I cannot make him feel better about himself in this world, then Hafiz, quickly run to the mosque and pray, for you have committed the only sin that I know. This idea of serving that ideal, if you can see it in yourself, you'll see it everywhere. And your worship will no longer be of the me, but of the other. Your devotions will no longer be to the me, but to the other. You will give and give and give and give and love and love and love because you're infinite. That's the dream. That's overcoming the original sin 
that's vanquishing that cherubim with the flaming sword of desire, and that's returning to your Eden. <laughs>